Thank you, Lyle. That Lyle's a friend of mine. He's been visiting and coming to our church the last several months. And uh, Dr. Mays is a friend of Lyle's as well. You're going to be hearing him on the piano a little bit more often, maybe. So thanks again for blessing us this morning. Appreciate that. If you have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 13. John 13. And while you're turning there, I'll give you a little update on what's been going on in our life a little bit. I was gone a week ago uh, to so go see my dad, who had suffered a stroke about three weeks ago. I just want to thank the church for praying for, for my dad. He's doing pretty good. I was there last weekend, and basically he had a stroke that impaired his speech a little bit and his left arm and his left leg, and so I was able to just kind of spend the weekend with him, and his speech is almost 100% back. He's got pretty good use of his arm, but his leg is still needing a lot of strengthening with physical therapy and occupational therapy. So the good news is my dad knows the Lord. Uh, he's walking with the Lord through this trial. Uh, the doctors are telling him they think he'll get 100% of it back, but it could take up to about a year. And so I appreciate your prayer. So many of you have asked, how's my dad doing and what's going on? And so that's just kind of a little update about what's going on in his life. And so thanks again for allowing me to be there uh, last weekend as we have uh, had a Philippe Villiers fill the pulpit preaching on Ecclesiastes. I know you were blessed and encouraged by that message of one of our missionaries in France. And then I also wanted to let you guys know I'm going to be gone next week uh, because next week I'm going to be running a marathon. With my beautiful wife, Lisa, we are digging in and running the L.A. Marathon. So while you're worshiping here in the Word next Lord's Day, we'll be worshiping out on the street as we are starting at Dodger Stadium and running all the way down to Santa Monica Pier. And uh, something that we've been uh, thinking about doing together for a long time. And uh, I've run a few marathons back when I was younger, so uh, this will be Lisa's first. But we're super excited about it. I know it's torture to some people, but for us, it's worship. All right, we're going to be worshiping our Creator. That's why I got the slick haircut, to keep me aerodynamic <laughs> when I'm out there. I'm going to try to qualify for Boston, so we'll see what happens. But anyway, it'll be a lot of fun. We have another person, by the way, Kathleen. Uh, Kathleen is running the marathon as well. Kathleen Todd, is she with us this first service? I think she typically comes to second service. So pray for the three of us as we're out there. Uh, we'll be thinking about you. Actually, we'll just be thinking about the finish line, but we'll be, uh, we'll be uh, missing you next Sunday. So here we are in John chapter 13. We're going to be continuing uh, a part two of a sermon I began two weeks ago entitled Loving to the End. Loving to the End, John 13. I'll read verses 1 through 11. Here's what the Apostle John writes. Now before the, past, the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, not all of you are clean. Father, we do bow our heads before you this morning, and we thank you for this example of Jesus, for this story of Christ washing the disciples' feet, and I pray that as we examine it this morning, that you would encourage our hearts of your love for us, and the way that you serve us, and the way that you teach us, and it would cause us, Lord, to want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And so we give this morning to you. We pray for your blessings on this service and the preaching of your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, not many can lay claim to fulfilling their vow of till death 
do us part. But for one California couple who had been married an incredible 62 years, that's exactly what happened. It's a love story that may remind you of a Hollywood movie, but it's real. And it's the life of a Bakersfield man and woman whose love for each other was on display, literally, until the day they died. Don was born in North Dakota and studied civil engineering, a career path that would eventually land him in Bakersfield and closer to the future love of his life, Maxine. The couple met at a bowling alley and married a few years later. Don and Maxine traveled the world together, adopted two boys along the way, and eventually settled down. They were married for almost 62 years, and everything was done together. As their age finally caught up with them, Don fell and broke his hip. The family took Don to the hospital, but his health was quickly declining. And around the same time, the cancer that his wife had been battling for years also progressed. The family knew that they couldn't keep them apart. So they were moved to a spare bedroom in a family member's home. We kept them together and had their beds side by side, the daughter said. Don, with a smile on his face, saw all the pictures taken by the family as they held hands from hospital bed to hospital bed. The granddaughter said, I knew in my heart this was supposed to happen. Grandma and grandpa are supposed to be together and grandma and grandpa are going to die together. And that's exactly what happened. I could hear on the monitor, she took her last breath and I came to check. She had passed, said the granddaughter. Maxine was gone. I walked them out with her body, walked back in to check on Grandpa, and he quit breathing as soon as her body left the room. He left with her, and they passed four hours apart from each other, she said. The man that married the love of his life 62 years earlier was only hours behind in his death. He loved her to the very end. Now, what a sweet story of love between a husband and a wife. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but that's how I want to go. You know, sometimes we'll debate who's going to die first. And I'm like, let's just die at the same time. And then we don't have to worry about it, right? And that's exactly what happened to this, cu this couple. It was a lifelong love. They loved each other to the very end. And I just want to remind you that while we look at that human picture of a lifelong love, it doesn't really compare fully with the love that Jesus Christ has for his own. The love that Jesus Christ has for his own will never die. It is an eternal love. It is a true forever love. The love that came from Jesus was a love that came with great cost. He did more than just hold your hand. Jesus gave his life for his own. And Jesus gave the ultimate sacrifice to accomplish the atonement of redemption. Jesus loved you to the very end. And this morning, we're going to learn how Jesus has loved us to the very end. Jesus has never given up on his own. Jesus has never stopped loving you. Jesus has never stopped serving you. And Jesus has never stopped teaching you with his words as well as with his actions. And so this morning, I want to give you three headings that will remind you that Jesus loves you to the end. The first heading we looked at last time together, it just simply says, Jesus loved his own. Look back at verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We talked about how there's three little parts here of this first verse that point to the fact that Jesus loved his own. The first is the Passover. And we understand the Passover points to Jesus' sacrifice. It was around the time of the Passover when this happened, and that was not by accident, because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so we see that Jesus loved his own by dying for them. The Passover 
which had been practiced for 1,500 years, was now coming to an end as Jesus would die for our sins once and for all. And so there's significance here that we'll look at as we continue this story of the Passion Week of how Jesus was crucified at the same time that these lambs were slaughtered. Well, not only does the Passover point to Jesus' sacrifice or his love for us, but also the hour. The hour points to his omniscience. As we've been reading through John, the hour has not come, the hour has not come, and now it says basically the hour has come. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to depart out of this world to the Father. And this word know or knew, when it says Jesus knew, means to have information about. It means to be intimately acquainted with. And this verse reminds us that Jesus knows all things. Remember, Jesus is God. And he did not give up any of the attributes of his deity when he became a man. And we read about Jesus' omniscience in John 6, 64, where Jesus said, But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it is who would betray him. And so Jesus knows the hour has come for him to be crucified. The hour has now come for him to pay the price for our sins. The time has come for him to fulfill the purpose for which the Father sent him. And the time has come for Jesus to fulfill his mission. And Jesus will soon depart out of this world and go back to the Father. And so we see here the Passover points to his love for us, the hour points to his love for us, and also the love that's mentioned here points to basically Jesus's character, points to his character. The word for love here in verse one is the word agape. In this context, this word means to practice love, to express love, or to prove one's love. In other words, this isn't just lip service. This isn't you telling someone that you love them, but you never do anything for them. Love is a choice. Love is a sacrifice. But what makes this kind of love so appealing is that you want to make that choice and you want to make that sacrifice. That's how you honor the other person is you don't just sacrifice for them and make the choice out of duty, but it's a delight for you. It's an honor for you to serve that person in that way. And when Christ came to the cross, it's as if he's saying, it's my pleasure to die on the cross for you. Way better than how they say it at Chick-fil-A when they give you a chicken sandwich, you know, and you say thank you. And they say, oh, it's my pleasure. And you're like, oh, come on, whatever. You know, but the idea is that when Christ gave his life for us, it really was his pleasure. It was his desire. And that's how we show love to one another. It's not so much out of that, that begrudging, I have to do this, because it shows love. It's like, I want to do this. And Jesus says it this way in John 15, 13, greater love has no one than this, than someone would lay down his life for his friends. Now, Jesus loved us to the very end. The word end here in the text is the word telos. It, it means perfection or completion. In other words, Jesus loved us perfectly. He loved us completely. Jesus didn't love us halfway. Jesus didn't love us partially. Jesus didn't love us half-heartedly. No, Jesus loved his own who were in the world, and he loved them out of the world, and he loved us who were in Christ to the very end. Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You should never doubt God's love for you. You should never stop thinking about the sacrifice he made for you. When others abandon you, and when your friends disown you, and talk about you behind your back, and when you feel all alone, Jesus loves you. He rent the heavens and came down. Jesus' love for you is unceasing. Jesus' love never fails. His love is always constant. His love is always caring. And his love will see you through. No matter what you're going through today, you can rejoice in the fact that Jesus loves you. And he loves you to the end. And so we see here in this text of verses 1 through 11, Jesus loves his own. And then in verses 2 through 5, we see that Jesus served his own. Look at verse 2, where it says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. 
Now in this verse, the attention suddenly shifts from the beauty and the integrity of the love of Christ to the ugliness and the depravity of Judas. This is going from the light of day to the darkness of night. This is changing our focus from the brilliant light of Jesus to the pitch black darkness of the devil. And yet, this should come as no surprise to the reader of this gospel, because in John 6, verses 70 through 71, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And he spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. At this last supper, here in John 13, Jesus met with his disciples for the final time as a group. And at this last supper in the upper room, Jesus serves his disciples by washing their feet. And what amazes me most about this passage is that Jesus would have washed Judas's feet. Not only did Jesus choose Judas as one of the twelve, not only did Jesus allow Judas to carry around the money bag, but Jesus actually washed Judas's feet. Now, to wash the feet of your child is one thing, and to wash the feet of the one you love is another. But to wash the feet of your betrayer requires this incredible ability to have self-control and love even to your archenemy. There is no doubt here that Jesus is obeying what he had taught us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5:44. but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And I hope from this example of Christ that we will learn to love our enemies in a similar way. Now, not only did Jesus serve his enemies, but he also served his own by fulfilling the Father's plan. There in verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Jesus knew that he had come from God and that he was going back to God. And just as powerful as the incarnation was, the ascension was powerful as well. God would accept his son back into heaven because Jesus was holy. Jesus had never sinned. The mud and the mire of this world never stained his soul or defiled his nature. He was worthy when he came to earth, and he was just as worthy when he went back up into heaven. And it was this promise of Jesus going and coming back that I believe gave him comfort and even confidence during the times ahead. He knows he's going to go through the cross, and he knows that it will be difficult, but he also knows that he will go back to the Father. John chapter 16, verse 28, Jesus said, I came from the Father, and I have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And I believe it's in that same mindset that we can have comfort and confidence to get through our trial. We came from the Father, and we're going back to the Father. Now, we didn't exist in eternity past, except maybe in the mind of God. But when you were created, and when you were born, then God put you on this planet, and he's also going to take you back, those who are in Christ, to be with him forever. And Jesus, we're seeing here in this passage, he served his own. He loved his enemies. He served the Father by fulfilling his mission. And then in verses 4 and 5, we read that Jesus washed the disciples' feet. And so that next blank there says, Jesus served by humbling himself. He served his own by humbling himself. Verses 4 and 5, Jesus rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. At the end of the Last Supper, Jesus got up and he laid aside his outer clothing and he tied a towel around his waist and he did the unthinkable. He washed the disciples' feet. The roads of Israel were dirty and they were dusty. And the footwear of the day was sandals. And obviously, feet walking in sandals on sandy and rocky soil are going to get dirty. And by the way, the disciples did not wear socks with their sandals. They were way too cool for that. 
Right? So this, their feet would have gotten pretty dirty on every given day. And it was the custom for that kind of culture that when you went to someone's house, the generous host would offer water for you to wash your feet when you came over. And the really rich people had servants. And if you were a distinguished guest, the servant would wash your feet when you came over to their house. We see this throughout the Bible, this idea of washing feet. Uh, did you know that in the Old Testament, it was Abigail when she responded to the servants of David in 1 Samuel 25, 41, and she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. We see the same thing in the first century when a woman of the city who was a sinner began to wet Jesus' feet with her hair and her tears and wipe them with her hair. And in that moment, Jesus said in Luke 7, 44, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. We also see some instruction about widows in 1 Timothy chapter 5, where we are taught that a widow was respected if she had a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, and washed the feet of the saints. It was John the Baptist who said that he was not even worthy to untie Jesus's sandals. And why would you untie somebody's sandals unless you were planning on washing their feet? And so Jesus, the Savior of the world, is now acting as the servant of all. This would have been particularly convicting for the disciples because the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all report the disciples had just been arguing about who would sit at Jesus's right hand and at his left hand when he entered into his kingdom. That's the context of what had just been happening before this was going on. And so instead of lobbying for position, they should have been lowering themselves to serve Jesus. Now, according to the Jewish historians, not even Jewish slaves were asked to wash the feet of other Jews. This was such a, a, a basic task, such a humbling task, it would only be the servants who would be employed from other countries and other cultures who would, who would do this humiliating service. And Jesus, being otherworldly, humbled himself. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. For Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and offer his life for us. And we should have this same mind in ourselves, right? Among, among our own selves, we should have the, the mind of Christ. We should be the lowly ones. We should be serving the Lord and serving one another humbly and graciously in a way that honors the other person. And Jesus taught that that's the fruit of a true Christian, and he taught that even at the sheep and the goat's judgment in Matthew 25, Jesus says this. Do you remember this story? When, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer to them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Well, let me ask you this morning, how are you doing in humbling yourself and serving one another? Which do you enjoy more, serving others or being served by others? Are you serving with the right heart and with the right motive? Do you serve when no one else is watching? 
what you do to the least of these, you do unto Christ. And and Jesus showed his love by humbling himself. A a humble person is willing to serve others. They, they, They want to. Right? A, a proud person only serves himself. A humble person loves others. A prideful person only loves himself. A humble person counts it as a joy and a privilege to give up their time and resources to be a blessing to others, while a prideful person uses all of their time and all of their resources on themselves. And I would challenge you this morning to think about how much of your time each day is focused on serving yourself and how much of your time each day is focused on serving others. Is your happy place found in taking care of you or taking care of somebody else? Because here's the problem. We think there's more joy in serving yourself. And that's a lie. Because when you start serving others, God gives you a joy that is unspeakable. And if you'll put down your own selfishness, and start following the, the Savior's command. And of course you have to ask God to help you. In that moment, it's not like you feel like washing somebody's feet or serving somebody in any way. If you're like me, you're just selfish. And you need to ask God, would you just show me, would you remind me that it is a lie for me to think that taking care of myself will bring me greater joy? Taking care of that person, their need, at this moment, with the right heart and the right attitude, will bring you far greater joy than serving yourself. And we all have a great debt that we could never pay, but Jesus has written his name over our debt so that we can be free to serve him. Well, we've seen how Jesus loved his own. That was point one. We've seen how Jesus served his own. That was point two. And now we hear we are in our third heading, verses 6 through 11. Jesus taught his own. He taught his own. That next blank says the confusion of Peter. The confusion of Peter, verses 6 and 7. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Now, this is unbelievable that the Lord of the universe would wash Peter's feet. This washing of the feet most likely made Peter feel uncomfortable. This would have been embarrassing. It is like all of a sudden in this moment, the disciples were feeling the shame for not washing Jesus's feet. And in that moment, it suddenly dawned on them that they should have been serving Jesus instead of Jesus serving them. And oh, Peter gets it fully as he looks at Jesus and says, Lord, the word kurios, this is the, the word that the Septuagint uses to refer to Yahweh. In other words, in this moment, Peter is acknowledging that Jesus is Lord of all. In this moment, Peter is perplexed as to why the Lord of the universe would wash his feet. I mean, Jesus has all power and he has all authority and he has all majesty. And yet Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. Peter gets very personal here. He says, do you wash my feet? In this moment, Peter is not focused on others. He wants to know why Jesus would do this for him. Why would Jesus stoop so low for him? Why would Jesus do that which was below a Hebrew slave, mind you, for him? And I don't know if you've ever been served like this, but I remember several years ago going to Uganda on a mission trip where Shannon and Danielle Hurley served, and we were there in their village of Kubamatwe, and they took our mission team and divided us up into into small groups because... uh, members of the community wanted to have us over for dinner. So we go into these very uh, primitive homes, thatched roof, uh, ground floor, no electricity, and they want to feed us dinner. And the house that I went to that night had about 500 square feet total, two rooms, a room in the front where the family room would gather and they would eat, and a room in the back where all the family would sleep. And they just had a couple of chairs. And it was the custom to put the men in the chairs and to honor them. And me being a pastor, they put me there in the chair, and the family just sits there at my feet and serves me. Now, I'm just telling you, that's one of the most uncomfortable things I've ever done in my life. Right? It's not comfortable being served in that way. It's a very humbling thing. And yet, sometimes that's a good thing for you to be humbled. 
right? It's a good thing for you to be humbled. I didn't feel very comfortable in that moment, but you know what? Sometimes that's a good place to be. And in this case, Jesus is saying, Peter, right now, this is a good place for you to be. You need to be where you are, and you need to allow me to wash your feet. And in fact, in verses 7, uh, it says here, What I am doing now you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. And in the midst of Peter's confusion, Jesus tells him that he will understand more in the future. And I think part of this is better understood by Peter in verses 12 through 15, and then part of this will be better understood by Peter after the resurrection. But look at verses 12 and 15. We'll get here next time. But in verse 12, it says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Now again, we'll look at this in much more detail next time, but for now, please note that Jesus is saying that he is doing this for an example. And just as Jesus is serving them in this moment, they need to serve each other in the future. And may they never forget this example of humility and service. And may they never forget the love of Christ who is loving them throughout their lives and now loving them to the very end. And may they they never forget that while Jesus was above them, he put himself beneath them, for Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. Now look, with me, if you will, in a couple of chapters over in chapter 15, John 15, verse 15, it says, Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from you, or excuse me, all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now, in a way, here in John 15, 15, Jesus is saying that you have graduated from being a servant or a slave to being a friend. Now, in some context, we are to think of ourselves as servants or as slaves of Christ, and that is a good and right thing for us to see ourselves that way. But in this context, Jesus is saying that his disciples have moved from slave status to friend status. Slaves don't know all that the master is up to. And they simply work for their master and carry out their daily tasks. Slaves don't necessarily know the master's plan for the whole estate. Slaves don't sit at the board of directors meeting and contribute to the leadership of an organization. But friends do. And friends are at a higher status than slaves. And friends are shown greater kindness and intimacy than slaves. And Jesus says to those whom he has saved... And to those whose feet he has washed, he says to them, you are my friend. He is saying, slaves don't know what the master is doing, but friends do. Jesus is saying, you are my friends. And because you are my friends, I have made known to you all that the Father has revealed to me. Jesus is saying, I have held nothing back. You know everything about me. You know everything about my life. You know everything about me coming to fulfill my Father's will. You know all of this because you are my friend. When Jesus washes your feet, you move from being a slave to being a friend. But it may not be until years later that Peter and the disciples truly appreciated the entire significance of what Jesus was doing. And just like during the triumphal entry that we read in John 12, 16, where it says his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about him and had been done to him. So it was likely many years later that it all sank in which is why Peter could write some 30 or 40 years later when he wrote 1 Peter, very clear statements about who Jesus was and what he did. And listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Listen to the clarity. It's now crystal clear in his mind what's going on. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. 
And then in 1 Peter 2.24, speaking of Christ's sacrifice, Peter writes this, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter was very clear in his understanding of the atonement in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. What we're seeing is that Peter doesn't understand it all now, but he will later. And isn't that the same way with us? We don't understand it all now in that moment, but we'll understand more later. Lord, I don't know why this is going on in my life right now, but I know you will help me understand it later. God, I don't know why I didn't get the job, but I'm sure there is something that you want to teach me. Lord, I don't know why my girlfriend or my boyfriend broke up with me, but afterward I hope to understand. Right, Lord, I don't know why our church went through such a struggle, but I know you're in control. Jesus, I don't know why I'm so down right now, but will you lift me up? You have called me friend. You have revealed yourself to me. You have washed my feet, and that's enough, Lord. That's enough to know that I'm yours. So we see that in Peter's confusion, it eventually leads to this conviction as well. Look next at B there in your outline, verses 8 and 9, the conviction of Peter. While he's a little confused at first, he's starting to understand more. Verses 8 and 9, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Now, Peter had a bad habit of sticking his foot in his mouth. And Peter had a bad problem of telling at times Jesus what he should do. Do you remember what Peter said to Jesus when Jesus told the disciples that he was going to the cross in Matthew 16, 22 through 23? Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Can you imagine rebuking the Lord? Can you imagine telling Jesus what to do? Can you imagine thinking that you know better than God? This is why Jesus was so strong with Peter. He needed to be put in his place. Peter was using man's wisdom instead of using God's wisdom. And anytime you're using man's wisdom instead of using God's wisdom, you need to be rebuked. You need to be rebuked if you believe in evolution over creation. You need to be rebuked if you believe in secular psychology over and above biblical counseling. You need to be rebuked if you accept the world's morality over biblical morality. And don't ever tell God what he can and cannot do. Don't ever tell God what he did and did not say. Go back to the Bible come under the authority of the scripture, and God's word will not be broken, God's word never fails, and God's word will not be shaken. And so Jesus, in this context, answers Peter. Peter's like, hey, you shouldn't be washing my feet. Jesus says, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. The word wash is used repeatedly in the New Testament to be a reference to salvation, specifically to regeneration. In 1 Corinthians 6, 11, Paul writes to the believers in Corinth who had come out of some pretty gnarly sin, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. In a similar way, Paul teaches in Ephesians 5, 26, how Jesus loves and therefore cleanses his bride, which is the church, Ephesians 5, 26, says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That's not the function of a husband to a wife. That's the function of Christ to his church when he saved his church. And in Titus 3, 5, we are reminded that this work of washing and renewal is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing 
of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. The writer of Hebrews says that those who have a true heart of faith have been washed with pure water. Hebrews 10, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So Jesus is saying, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. You have no part with me. You have nothing to do with me. This this word share or part is used by Jesus in Luke 10, 42, when Jesus says that Mary has chosen the good part. This same word is also used in 2 Corinthians six fifteen, where Paul writes, what accord has Christ with Belial or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? In other words, Jesus is saying, if I don't have all of you, then I don't want any of you. If you don't get all the way on the airplane, then you're not leaving the airport. If you don't get all the way on the boat, then you're not leaving the shore. If you don't cheer for the Dodgers all the way through both World Series that we lost last time, then you're not a real fan. He's talking about total commitment here. Jesus is saying, if I bought you with a price, then you are mine. Jesus is saying there is no such thing as being part way into the kingdom. You are either in or out. If you have been washed by the Lord, then there is an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will never fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. But you have to have been washed. You don't receive it if you are dirty. You don't get the inheritance if you are not a true son or a true daughter. If you are not washed, then you have no share, no part with Jesus, to which we can almost predict what Peter is about to say next. He's going to jump in with both feet, and he doesn't disappoint us. In verse 9, he says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter has a tendency of going from one extreme to another. In one moment, Peter and the disciples are afraid of Jesus and think he's a ghost. And in the next moment, Peter is jumping into the Sea of Galilee and trying to walk on water. In one moment, Peter is frustrated about not catching any fish. And then in the next moment, the net is so full of fish that he jumps into the water and he swims to shore when he realizes that it's Jesus. In one moment, Peter says, I will die with you. And I will never deny you. And in the next moment, he swears that he never even knew Jesus. And so in the same way, Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. And in the next moment, Peter says, not just my feet, but my whole body. Take my hands and my head and just wash all over me. I I don't know how clear it is to Peter what it is that the Lord is offering, but whatever it is, he wants all of it. He wants to be immersed in Jesus. He wants everything that Jesus has. He wants to lather up in the grace of God. He wants to be soaked with God's mercy from the top of his head to the bottom of his foot. He wants the whole thing. Peter plunges in. I like that about Peter. Sticks his foot in his mouth a lot, but I love the way he loves our Lord. And let me just ask you, how about you this morning? Has Jesus washed away your sin? Do you have a place with Christ? Does he have all of your heart? Because he doesn't take it any other way. You can't break your heart in half and give half of it to Jesus and half of it to the world. And when I got married, I I gave my whole heart to Lisa, right? I, I don't have anything for anybody else. You got to give all that you have to the Lord. Do you have this conviction of Peter? Are you ready to dive in? Are you ready to take the plunge? Are you so moved by the grace and the glory of God that you want all that he has for you? Or are you here this morning and you're holding back just a little bit? Would you say, God, you can have it all except for my money. God, you can have it all except for my sexuality. God, you can have it all except the way I try to control or manipulate my marriage. God, you can have it all except my Christian liberties. Certain things God's word doesn't deny, so I'm going to hold on to those things. Listen to me. God wants all of you. Give yourself to him this day. And so we're seeing here the confusion of Peter. We're seeing the conviction of Peter. 
And now let's look at this clarification from Jesus in verses 10 and 11. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that is why he said, not all of you are clean. Here, Jesus makes it abundantly clear what this washing is all about. If you have already been bathed, then you don't need to take another full body bath. You need only to wash your feet. And in the first century, Jews would have taken a full bath infrequently. It would not have been an everyday experience, but they would have involved in foot washing from day to day. So they would have bathed more, less frequently, but they would have washed their feet possibly several times a day. And so Jesus is saying to Peter, in physical terms, if you have already taken a bath, then you need to only wash your feet. So spiritually speaking, when one has been redeemed by Christ, they have been washed spiritually. They have been regenerated. They have become completely clean. Positionally before God, Christians are seen as being made pure because of the righteousness of Christ. Titus 2.14 says that Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. John 7, uh, 1 John 1, 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 1 Peter 1.19 says that just as you have been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like the lamb without blemish or spot. So what we're saying is that if Jesus, the lamb of God, is without spot or wrinkle, when you have been washed in his blood, you too will be without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And Jesus washes you thoroughly. Jesus washes behind your ears. Jesus washes between your toes. Jesus washes that middle part of your back. And Jesus is saying that if you have been washed, by the waters of regeneration, then you are completely clean. However, Christians still sin every day. And so there is an ongoing need of daily confession and daily washing of your feet, which get dirty again. And that's why 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's why James 5.16 says, therefore confess your sins to one another. Jesus then looks at the disciples as a group and says at the end of verse 10, you are clean. That must have been really encouraging, right? He's basically saying to, to 11 of the 12 disciples, you are clean. In other words, you're saved, guaranteed salvation for you. You guys are clean, but not every one of you. And in verse 11, for he knew who was to betray him, and that is why he said, not all of you are clean. So you're clean, but not all of you. You're saved, but not all of you. Jesus who knows all things, Jesus who has all knowledge, Jesus who knows what is within a man, Jesus who knew who it was who would betray him. This is a clear delineation that Jesus is making. Jesus is separating the wheat from the chaff. He is saying that 11 of the disciples are clean, but one is not. Jesus is saying that 11 of the disciples are Christians, but one is not. And the one who was not was Judas, who was going to betray him. Jesus was careful to point out that Peter and Judas were in a different relationship with Jesus. Yes, Jesus washed Judas's feet, but it did Judas no good because he had not been bathed all over. Our Lord made it very clear that if Judas had have been cleansed from his sin, then he would have been a believer, but he was not cleansed from his sin. Therefore, he's an unbeliever. He's referred to in the scripture as the son of perdition. In the Believer's Bible Commentary, William McDonald writes this, quote, there is a difference between the bath and the basin. The bath speaks of cleansing received at the time of one's salvation, cleansing from the penalty of sin through the blood of Christ takes place only once. 
the basin speaks of cleansing from the pollution of sin and must take place continually through the word of God. There is one bath, but there are many foot washings. Well, how about you this morning? Have you been washed? Has your whole body and soul been cleansed by the whole Christ? There is no halfway with God. Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And if that is you this morning, then I call you to repent this day. You've never had a bath and been cleansed from all of your sin. I invite you this morning to confess your sins to God and to be cleansed by the mercy and the grace of God. Why stay dirty when you can be made clean? Have you already taken a spiritual bath? Maybe you just need to wash your feet. What are those ongoing sin struggles in your life? Are you regularly confessing your sin to God and to others? May God convict you with his truth and cleanse you with the washing of the water of the word. And may you be greatly encouraged today that he has loved you to the very end. He's shown it to us on the cross. He's made you brand new in Christ. And now we need continual foot cleansing as we struggle. And so as we leave this morning, look at those take-home points. You can just work through them maybe this afternoon with your family or in your small group. How does it impact you when you think about the fact that Jesus loved you to the very end? And the whole point is that your obedience should be motivated out of this unbelievable thankfulness for how Christ has loved you. That in his last hours on earth, he was thinking about how to wash his disciples' feet and how to love them and to teach them. And he loved them to the very end. And that's the same way that he's loved you. If you're a Christian, he's loved you with the, with the ultimate price. The second question there says, do you want Jesus to wash all of you? Or is there something that you're holding back? Could you say like Peter, like, Lord, if that's true, wash all of me, my hands, my head, my whole body. Or is there some part of your life that you're just holding back that you don't really want washed. Third, how are you doing in this area of daily cleansing of daily sins? Maybe again, you've been washed by regeneration and you know you're his, but how are you doing in daily confession to the Lord? One who has loved you to the uttermost and who has loved you to the very end. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning and the opportunity to look at this passage of scripture about the foot washing of Jesus to the disciples and to Judas. And I pray, God, as we just contemplate so many things that we could observe out of this text, so many pictures of, of conviction and of teaching and of clarification, we pray, God, that if there would be someone here today who's never been truly washed, that you would speak to them through your word and that you would grab a hold of their heart and that you would allow them to see that they need to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. And God, for those of us who are believers today, I pray that you would help us to see the value and the importance of regular foot washing in the sense of that we would want to keep our feet clean or we don't want to continue to walk around in the mud and in the mire. And so we need daily confession and daily cleansing. And this whole picture, God, I just pray we'd be struck by this example of our Lord Jesus serving each one of his disciples those who loved him and this one that did not. And yet he showed such kindness, such grace, such humility. Help us to learn from that example and to do likewise. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.